0: Well, uh, hello everybody yeah let's um, get to glad, it glad <laughs> glad to see you all out there again um and uh, i'm john atack this is my beloved friend chris shelton
1: hello everybody Welcome to another edition of the Sensibly Speaking podcast uh, on my side of the pond that's how this will be released and uh yes as always I am more than happy to have a friendly chat with John Atac mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be uh the most popular partnership on my on my channel in the long in the long term and I think uh, as I look back on it I think um our conversations are probably if i had to you know if i had to get rid of everything i think i'd probably save our our conversations because we've covered we've touched on all the important points
0: Mm, how incredibly kind thank
1: you yeah well and and yeah
0: it is true that between us you know because of what we're thinking about we've we've looked at this thing in a in a similar sort of way and and you were saying before we started that that you're gradually in your mind constructing a model which you wanted to talk about and and we'll sort of start there we're also very likely to talk about if if we get to it to about the hundreds of splinter groups that have come out of scientology but let's start with some way of, of assessing these groups and their behaviors yeah
1: i'm you know there's a there's a million models out there for a million different things and i think i want to be clear that you know this is a developing idea that i have Mm -hmm. right now that i've shared on my channel somewhat and i wanted to share more because i'm Mm -hmm. interested in feedback on it and perhaps criticism of a constructive nature um, this is something that's been forming for a very long time in my mind. And has really started solidifying recently in enough, in enough certainty that I feel like I can, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit. And it's not a cult model. It's not a model like the, like the bite model where we're trying to explain a control structure or framework, right? You have Lifton's eight points, you have the bite model. You've got, you know, about a million. Saldini. Other, yeah, exactly.
0: Faldini's seven points. The, the vital.
1: influence. Yeah. Exactly. You've, um, you've got a lot of ways of looking at behavior and models are really only as useful as they serve us to kind of structure or categorize or break down information so they're, that we they're can...
0: They're at the threshold of understanding. They're really the beginning of understanding. I mean, I too have spent time, as you know, developing a, a model of the human predator by looking at the various characteristics of sociopaths and psychopaths. And I'm using those terms in Robert Hare's um, definition because they're different uh, antisocial personalities and malignant narcissists froms model, which is the narcissistic personality disorder. And what I did was say, what's in common between these things. That's a human predator, not interested in diagnosing somebody. Right. If you see these characteristics in somebody around you, then be a little bit careful, you know, take a step back and it's not a, yeah, it's not a way of defining behavior and saying, well, he hasn't got point number seven, therefore he's all right. You know, it, as with Hare and his psychopathy model, he now has, for the last 20 years, he's had this thing where if you score more than four and less than 30 on his psychopathy checklist revised, then you're a sociopath. If you score more than 30, up to the 40, which is the top, you're a psychopath. And looking at those characteristics, that there's an overlap between the sociopath and the narcissist and one of the differences is risks that um psychopaths don't care about taking risks themselves in my experience of malignant narcissists, people like hubbard they like to make other people take risks and they are cowards themselves
1: big time but big time
0: otherwise you get most of the other characteristics and the thing is if somebody's mean and horrible to you then you know go somewhere else do something else that'd be my advice very profound 40 years of studying subjects. yeah, exactly move on If yeah, somebody's already <laughs> to you, leave them be <laughs> that's right
1: just move on that's right yeah and the fact of course that you know and and it, well and there are, and there are even within that world there are other models right we have the dark, dark triad which we've talked about at some length yep. because i'm particularly impressed by that categorization of people into apaths empaths and sociopaths and and of course definitions matter and, and how we think about these things matters a lot. And, so
0: and where Jane McGregor uses the term sociopath, it is covered by my term predator, because you have psychopaths, antisocial personalities, malignant narcissists in that. So we really, you know, it's a gateway to understanding to to look at these things and it's helpful exactly as you say. Yeah. But it, it isn't a sort of um we're now going to do an exam and you have to memorize yeah, you know, the, uh, no. the points of the suppressive person or something.
1: No, not and, at all.
0: <laughs> um, you don't have to always or never remember that they always or never say everything is always or never. Just like Al Ron Hubbard about psychiatry, for example. Oh gosh, he was a suppressive person. Psychiatrists are always doing this. He always. spoke in broad generalities. Oh no. Yeah, something like um, that doesn't apply to him of course so let's let's hear what you've got okay about, well what i um, yeah what i, what, what, I what
1: i'm sort of thinking here and this is nothing new i mean you and i have talked about some of this at length already um you know for a long time let me just kind of lay it out and then we can talk about it i guess is you know for a long time i've been um you know i got out of scientology and the number one question on my mind for a very long time was what the hell happened to me and that question, I believe, has now been answered. I, I don't have any more little little uncertainties or questions about what the hell happened to me as a Scientologist. That's been I, st- I
0: stepped in dog shit, and now I have to wipe it off my shoe.
1: Exactly, and I've and I've and we've we, and, and our talks and my talks with Rachel Bernstein and you know with, with so many other people on my channel have kind of really broken that down really mm-hmm. clear right you get predators and you get you know social pressures and you get this and you get that and, that's and your empathy
0: you. is is grabbed hold of and, and utilized for the bad of the cause that's yeah.
1: right that's right the whole weaponized empath thing made a lot of sense to me
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so that question then turned into another question um and that was um well and of course part of that was you know, and how do I make sure this never happens to me again? Well, that, that's where things got tougher because that then led to, well, what is it that drives people? Why are people acting the way that they do? What drives mm-hmm. behavior? Why, you know, can you, can you lay it, can you break it down into a few things as to what's driving people to do what they do? And I believe the answer to that question is yes. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of forwarding this idea of here's what I think makes people do what they do. And this goes beyond cult dynamics. This goes to any kind of behavior, really. The challenge is, you know, this is not studied. I don't have like research I can fall back on here. I have other people's theories I can fall back on for parts of this, and I'll mention those. (laughs) But, um, but there's still a lot. There would still be a lot of work to do to develop this into something that would be like a scientific framework. But right now, it's just it's just ideas. Um, So obviously, I you know, really glommed onto and really, really found affinity for critical thinking. I was really big on and still am big on critical thinking as a tool set or as a discipline, as I've put it, of disciplining your mind to think carefully and logically and, and rationally about problems that are presented to you or situations, right? Um, you know, you gotta understand that there are there's fallacious thinking, there's ways we think that are ridden with errors and, and problems, and we naturally tend to do that, and the discipline of critical thinking is learning how to overcome that. It's a very good thing. It's not, though, as I think we've agreed, it is not the one-stop shop for keeping yourself out of a cult or keeping yourself right. away from a predator or keeping yourself out of a bad situation, and there are reasons for that. Um, people can lie to you and deceive you, and critical thinking isn't necessarily going to be a lie detector. Um, and there are reasons we have to want to believe things. Yes, That's our contribution to that, right? Predators come along and lie to us, but we're also, you know, they happen, one of the tricks of the trade with predators is they lie to you about something you really kind of want to be true in the first place, you know, <laughs> or can be made to. And that's not victim blaming. It's the, it's the cleverness of the predator that they can tailor their approach to what you want. And here I'm getting into our emotional needs, right, which which we've talked about. This is very, very important. And this this was not something that I learned in studying coercive control. It was actually something that really opened up trying to do this goddamn tone scale video that I've been overpromising for years. And the reason it's taken years is because emotion is a deep topic, and it's not something mm-hmm. I wanted to give a surface veneer to i wanted to go deep i wanted to go well if hubbard's wrong about emotions why why is he wrong what's wrong with this and he is wrong he's completely wrong
0: but yeah yes it it, his attitude is the same always it's a kind of boy scout manual reader's digest attitude where he's read something in a magazine and that's now the truth yeah because he's managed to change it a little bit so it fits in with his crazy view I mean, he is so incredibly superficial. Yes. You know, yes. Exactly. time and time again.
1: And that's what we find with his tone scale, right? You dive into Science <laughs> of Survival, the big manual on it, and you look at the later works, and you look at his redefinitions of his redefinitions, and you go, the guy really didn't, you know, have much uh, there. And I mean, we,
0: we, we never find out what he means by an emotion. So pain and propitiation and making amends and hiding are now emotions, so the differentiation between mood and emotion that is made by most psychologists is just pushed aside um so there is no depth. he just jumps in with one of those. everybody knows this, so therefore, and as we know, okay. everybody knows is a broad generality, so he was suppressive <laughs>
1: there is being suppressive again um exactly at the at the end of the day, the lowest you know sort of place he takes it to is it's a vibration. Right, it's a it's a sort of a theton vibration, and you're kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. sure, you know, wavelengths emanated from a from a from a theton, and that's what your emotions are, and
0: sound sciency, yeah, very that. right, it's,
1: it's super sciency,
0: and ultimately, of course, the whole universe is just the vibration of the sound. Oh, mm. exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure how that helps me, but it, it, exactly. So.
1: So Hubbard's stuff doesn't really open many doors to understanding things, but you dive into emotions as I have through the literature, and mm-hmm. you find that nobody's really nailed it as far as a common agreed upon here's what it is. There that, that definition doesn't exist. There are lots of definitions for emotion. And you've um, got
0: you've got the big names like Paul Ekman and the work that he was yep. doing mm-hmm. before he fell under the spell of the Dalai Lama, which is quite amusing um and of course uh, lisa feldman barrett lisa
1: feldman barrett that's right
0: uh, who actually has picked up an idea that was around in sociology 25 years before she talks about it and on the cover of her book i love this thing that somebody calls her the new darwin of emotions and you can actually your fundamental hypothesis came from sociology but because psychologists and sociologists don't talk to each other it, it's quite escaped. I, I was I was fascinated by a book because I was already completely aware of the ideas she was talking about.
1: The, her theory but, of constructed emotions.
0: Yeah, but putting yeah. aside, you know, who originated it, it is a very interesting book and a very interesting way of, of looking at things. And, very, you know, going forward, will hopefully you know be helpful to, to deeper study.
1: Yeah, well, I hope so because I, I'm, I am a fan of her work, and I'm, and I'm not uncritical of her work. I'm just saying I'm a fan. You know, it makes a lot of yeah. sense to me. And it, and the thing that I liked about one of the, one of the key things I liked about how she presents is that she's, is that she makes the very lucid point that just because somebody's laughing doesn't mean they're happy. Mm-hmm. Just because somebody looks a particular way does not mean you've nailed where their emotional state is at. And that was a very, very important point because, of course, I've run into this even in, the, in, the, in my channel. Just, you know, we have, uh, I will do interviews with ex-cult members and we'll laugh about stuff that's not funny. Mm. And people would call us out for it in the comments. How, how dare you laugh at this? How dare you find humor in this? And it's like, no, that's not what we were doing. But not understanding that laughter could indicate something beyond humor it could release catharsis release right emotional tension i mean there's a lot of things laughter can convey besides humor and this is just one of a million examples but it's just and, a point i humor
0: humor's not necessarily yeah. about laughter this this weekend when i we put up thing with the last chat hub we might render somebody came and said look you've got to stop telling him off you know by making these you know ribbing him about you know him having hunted me for 20 years and tried to destroy me. Y- you know, you've got to forgive him. And it's like, no, you've not understood. We come from a cult- I'm from a British culture. He's from the Australian culture where friendship is shown by making what appear to be sarcastic remarks to other people. Right. He also comes from a culture where he'd come around and hit me with a cricket bat if he was upset, you know, so there's nothing for anybody to worry about. Exactly. <laughs> he is a robust, Exactly. But to remind him of those things, we laugh about that because it's gone and it is, you know, catharsis or, or, or showing that, that you have overcome something. It's not quite Hubbard's, you come up the tone scale until you laugh about it. I was very shocked when Michael Langoni, and I just named him, when Michael Langoni said, who was the president or the head of the International Cultic mm-hmm. Studies Association until fairly recently, and he said at a, a dinner conversation that somebody's not healed until... It doesn't bother them anymore what happened. And so I'm I'm kind of going, so the guy in the foxhole next to you, your your best friend, is shot dead. And there comes a time when that you don't feel anything about that. You have actually at that point become a psychopath. That that's the Hubbard idea that you'll no longer have feelings. You should always have feelings about the loss and trauma in your life, but it shouldn't overwhelm you. And right. you know, so for example, if I think about my mum who i looked after in the last years of her life and she lived to be 94 bless her um of course i'm sad that she's dead you know don't be ridiculous but uh, it also will bring a wistful smile to me because i remember her when she was alive and you know the daft things that she did so right. those things you know but this idea that there's some catharsis that will release an emotion well the idea that the gallows humor you know the next time somebody uses the expression to you that you're pulling their leg ask them if they know what it means because as far as gallows humor goes pulling somebody's leg means when they're hanging pulling their leg to snap their neck you're pulling my leg aren't you john wow no, not. that's where it comes from <laughs> wow
1: wow that's interesting i did not know that but yeah. um but again yeah absolutely right so again we can express you know, these emotions in lots of different ways. Um, so so it's been years of study for me in the field of emotions, uh, you know, diving deep as I could into the literature. We're not going to get this. into
0: in the last 50,000 yeah. years. There have been, no, God, sorry. no, 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 no. Okay, um, the last 45,000 years, this is the first advance. in the. No, the we're study. not going to go there. Good. Uh, I, I don't
1: think that's what I've got. Um, but but Thank here's, God for that. Here's, here's what I'm thinking is... Um, What this kind of led to was, you know, is you go, okay, there's all these emotions and emotional experiences, and we're not even touching on, you know, half of that right now. Um, But this led to emotional needs. And that's different from emotions. An emotional experience is something you're experiencing in a moment. It's It's generally a reaction. Um, you know, bodily and psychologically to, you know, stimuli, right? We can, we can psychologically define it that way. There's other ways of defining it. But, um, but that's not actually what I'm talking about when I talk about emotional needs. Um, emotions are something we all experience 24-7. There's, there's no such thing as human beings who aren't experiencing emotions. That's just, it, you know, it's like saying there's human beings who don't eat. It just doesn't happen. Um, similarly, Below all of this emotional experience or reaction comes our emotional needs. And this kind of, this theory or this idea comes out of um, or, or seems to be mostly traced back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this, this idea mm. of this pyramid and basic, you know, basic bodily you know, survival raw stuff that's at the bottom of the mm. pyramid and self-actualization is the top and you got levels in between where your needs have got to be fulfilled. That's yep. basically this idea, right? You have needs. If you're not eating, you're going to do whatever it's going to take for you to eat because you'll mm-hmm. die if you don't.
0: Yeah, or right? you'll die. Those it, are the choices. That's right. eat, eat the bloke next to you or you'll be eaten.
1: Exactly. And those, yeah. those basic needs, first are basic physical survival needs, sleep, food, shelter, right? Which is why I say when people come out of a cult, if you don't have food taken care of, uh, shelter taken care of and transport taken care of, there's no use talking about anything else until you do. Yeah. Those are your basic needs. And you need needs. to
0: sleep for three weeks.
1: <laughs> yeah, at least. Um and so those are really basic needs. But once you start building on that, once those are kind of taken care of and those are not the thing that's driving your your necessities, right? Your needs mm-hmm. is you start having this this next level up of of our emotional needs, right? The things that Make us feel that our life is satisfying, is is uh is happy, is meaningful, uh, meaningful, exactly, right? And there are different models of this, and I'm not hung up on any one model of emotional needs. I like the one I've chosen that's kind of got nine, it breaks them down into nine different buckets. But there's different models of four or five or ten or whatever. To me, the nine one, the nine point model makes the most sense for the way I think about things. And it includes things like community as an emotional need. You, you, you have to have a sense of community or, or friendship or social hierarchy or whatever you want to call it. Your place in it. This is very important to people. If this is, you know, this is the whole thing of why solitary confinement drives people absolutely batshit insane. Or one of the main reasons is because there's no community. There is no sense of anybody else. And lacking that drives people absolutely nuts. Um,
0: it, 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 yeah, I actually have a an, an example of this. I know yeah. a guy who was locked up by his group for 12 years oh. without seeing anyone else. Jesus. Um, Jesus. And he did. He did survive, Um, and he what he did it it fascinated me reading Victor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, because Frankl says you survive by he composed the lectures in logotherapy that he was going to be giving in the future. So the life of the mind, you know, was the thing. What this guy um, Arthur did was he composed music. Mm. and uh when i met him and he's he's an expert in denmark now helping people in his 70s uh brilliant guy lovely guy um but he um i i said oh oh please let me see the music let me find somebody i don't read music but let me so, find somebody who can play the music and i'm still waiting it was 2015 when he last promised that he'd let me have this but yeah that that isolation it <clears throat> for most people it that on its on its own in a few days this guy lasted 12 years in a few yeah. days for most people the lack of of other people will start a, a process which, which is which is the very model of insanity
1: exactly exactly and this was um this was really uh, quite uh, well put together um, John Oliver on his show did a thing on solitary confinement recently and uh, it was quite shocking to watch and horrifying because mm. people really will lose their minds over this and and uh, you know no assertion or claim that I'm making today is is claimed to be universal there 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 is uh, the the one thing you learn in psychology after a little while is there is no such thing as as every single person's going to comply with this or want to <laughs> But I'm talking in, you know, in 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 statistical averages and majorities here, no, right?
0: The bell curve.
1: Exactly, right? For most people, most of the time, we can say these things are absolutely true. And I feel mm. confident in saying that. Mm. So so emotional needs are really, really, really important. Community is one sense of meaning or having goals or purpose in your life, that you're fulfilling some purpose or meaning, that your identity is important. These are emotional needs. Why do we feel that way? Because that's how we're put together, right? Because that's what satisfies us as living entities, as human beings. And I'm not trying to necessarily answer the question of why we have emotional needs. I'm simply commenting on the fact that we do. It's an observable, empirical, obvious trait of every single human being. I really don't feel I'm out on a limb saying that, um, I think I can I think we can talk about you know people in Borneo we can talk about people in the Philippines we can talk about people in China and we can talk about people in the United States they all got emotional needs and I think we can categorize them pretty simply these ways I don't think this is a western idea no so um so these emotional needs drive I believe these emotional needs drive a tremendous amount of our behavior i you know mm. it's, it, to me this is sort of a three dimensional model in my mind and i don't quite have it all worked out yet in terms of what exactly it would look like to communicate best but it but in the in the picture the emotional needs are kind of the engine that's driving this
0: mm.
1: whereas Facts, critical thinking, which I mentioned to to start with, right, reason, our ability to think in sequences, in cause-effect, in like, okay, if I do this, this will happen. That's frontal lobe activity. That's very, very necessary for our survival. But all of those facts and all of those things that we come up with are subservient to the emotional needs. And this has been something, I think, a theme you and I have talked about for years, right? People can look at a fact and deny its existence if it doesn't make them feel satisfied. If if it somehow runs up against their religious beliefs, their ideological beliefs, Mm -hmm. their moral beliefs, then that fact can be rejected out of hand. Even if you stand, and I've watched this happen, I know you have too, in person and on, you know, video – where a person will be presented with factual information, here is conclusive proof of it, and they just look at it and go, yeah, that's nice. Nope, nope, I don't buy it. Hmm. And they don't buy it very simply because it violates some emotional need or the third thing I'm going to mention. Hmm. Um, and, and that need must be fulfilled. And facts are secondary to that. Now, facts can be useful in overcoming some emotional problems and needs people have if you're bringing, you know, if you can navigate it. That's what, you know, you and I have talked about with interventions and that kind of thing. But it's not so simple, as I think you know, of just sitting down and going, oh, you think this? Well, let me show you fact A and B and C and just – and everything's going to be fine here, right? That ain't how it works. And almost – and it's kind of funny how – Almost all the staging of an intervention is an effort to overcome this emotional component of belief, right? That they they have to believe this is true, and you have to arrange all these circumstances to get them in a place and a time where they won't freak out on you when you try to present them some facts, you know? Yeah. It's kind of the, it's kind of the anatomy of what an intervention is, you know? And so, so this is powerful, powerful stuff. So these emotional needs are kind of driving this, right? In other words, for a sense of community, for a sense of identity, I will invest, you know, tens, hundreds of hours in research and study and looking. I will go down internet rabbit holes. This is what drives conspiracy thinking, right? (sighs) ah, I'm on to the secret path, right? And this is so emotionally satisfying, and down the rabbit hole we go. So, And,
0: and let, let me interject to that yeah, point, yeah. That, that, that this is very much the way that, that some of the great critical thinkers of all time have functioned. So, you know, in, in the, the most stellar example is Isaac Newton, mm. who's considered by many to be the father of modern science, and yet spent far less time in scientific work than he did in biblical exegesis and alchemy Mm
2: -hmm.
0: This is not as well known but the later part most of his work was done in his 20s uh the optics and and the inverse square law of, of gravity he's in his 20s
2: yeah
0: he spends the rest of his life consuming mercury and going progressively more mad and chasing after the idea that the bible contains a code which will reveal the um proportions of solomon's temple right which we probably think never existed now uh, there's no architectural ev- there's no archaeological evidence for it but it, and that would be that would give you the, all the proportions of the universe right so that that idea of you know if you then think of the contemporary conspiracy theorist they've got hold of an idea so he's gone well the bible must contain this and you're going why why isaac why right. must it contain it because I feel certain that it does.
1: That's right, right there. And it, God and told it, me, and it, and it has to because I'm looking for this answer, and the answer must be here. So I've just got to figure it out. And that, and and to you know, a lot of people's credit, that's what drove a lot of the Enlightenment. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's trying to figure this whole thing out and make sense of God's plan and all of that. Um.
0: So, it le- leads us up to Immanuel Kant, the, the last of the great Christian philosophers, who's trying to say there must be sense in this. And then you get Schopenhauer who's saying, no, there isn't. That's right. <laughs>
1: that's right. That, that, I might want to challenge that assumption, <laughs> Mr. Mm. Kant. <laughs> exactly. Because um, that is an interesting assumption, isn't it? That mm. there must be sense in all of this.
0: And, and, and when we get to critical thinking, that, that, that is a problem that we each of us have to resolve, which is, what is the safe first premise that is absolutely guaranteed to be true, from which I can think? I've had enough people over the years tell me that they had no beliefs because they're atheists. And so I say, so you believe there's no God, and that's how you define yourself. That's a belief. Mm-hmm. I'm an agnostic. It's a really safe place to be, because I don't have to believe anything. Atheism right. necessitates a belief, a belief that something doesn't exist, which is, a, you know, as Richard Dawkins pointed out, is a kind of a strange place to start from. I would say that I, you know, I have come to conclusions about the world, and one of them is we and can understand things to the extent of human meaning, and human meaning is not all-encompassing, nor will it ever be. And when you look at somebody like Boole, who tried to put uh, logic into thinking using mathematics, Mm -hmm. which gave us computing, ultimately Mm -hmm. Boolean logic, but it does not work for human beings. You cannot reduce our thoughts to numerical values that can then be interrelated. Um, And I accept that. And by accepting that, it means that I have a fundamental premise, which is I don't really know what's going on.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And
0: there are, I mean, after I left Scientology, I I was kind of, well, we've got this true or false stuff going on. Uh, I think it's probably safer to say, this is extraordinarily improbable, and this is extraordinarily probable. Mm -hmm. And in between, there's a scale of probability and possibility. But that ultimately, when we say this is true, and we work from a first premise we are going to get into trouble pretty quickly
1: that's right. because
0: we're within the limits of human meaning. And if you sort of say, well, how about the universe has no purpose and it just happened? How about the universe is not trying to evolve so it can perceive itself through us as its sense organs, which is an amusing concept, but I don't see any proof of it. How about it's just happening and continuing to happen and it'll keep on happening up until a certain point where it won't, maybe. And that's about what we know. And that obsessive drive, therefore, to comprehend everything, to fit everything into its little engineering box so that we know how it works, to reduce human beings to machines, will fail and does fail. That doesn't mean that we can't have heuristics which help us to understand better how we're behaving and how others behave, which is what you're seeking to do here.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, I would say, dare say that that, that engine of... <laughs> of innovation and creation and trying to understand is itself an emotional need.
0: (laughs) Yes, and and I I think, you know, I I mean, um, my good friend, uh, Joe Zimhart would would point to Ernst Becker's work on on the denial of death and say, you know, this is what's driving us. And of course, Freud had the inversion of that, which is that there are two drives in the human being, sex and suicide. Those are the two things we seek, libido and thanatos. And huh. it's like, yeah, really? Uh, you know, I like ice cream as well. Exactly.
1: You know? I think there might be a little bit more to life than those two things.
0: Or, or you get the Buddha, you know, everything is suffering. And I'm kind of going, you know, I believed that for a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it anymore. There's quite a lot that's suffering, but there's ice cream as well. I think I mentioned ice cream already. I think Actually, I, right. I, I'm going to admit this publicly. I prefer iced mousse. Oh, wow. Which, which is ice cream, which is made with meringue, egg white. Interesting. And when you've had that, you don't want Haagen-Dazs anymore. But And if you come around to my house, I'll give you some because I make it. The, the black currants will be ready at the end of the month and we'll be starting to make fresh fruit ice mousse. Now I've got myself in trouble. There's going to be a queue down the oh, road. Yeah, now, yeah,
1: you're in all kinds of trouble. Yeah. Well, I, I of course, am more. I, I, I used to drink a lot of Coke, still do. But now I'm drinking the Kool-Aid.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it was the that was Flavor Aid's greatest trick, wasn't it? Blaming Kool Aid for Jones. Yes, it was. Yes, Aid, it was. yes, it was. Yes, We put them out of business. Misdirect
1: that right now. That's right. All right. So, all right. So, anyway, yes, the drive for uh, you know understanding our place, you know, and yes, we can relate this to lots of different things, including our mortality. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, we are finding that we have categories of emotional needs that are driving us because we mm. feel that this is important and so, and for whatever reason. And, and the great thing about emotional needs is you can put these different boxes out there and look at the infinite variety in which people manifest those needs. Mm. And this is where I think people get really confused because there is this infinite variety of, of, of how these needs are met, yet we can still categorize them in these boxes and go, well, cool, but existential meaning is a need. Now there's a million books on existential meaning and how to find it and how to go about it and what it is, but we can just look at it and go, there's a need. Community, social hierarchies, clubs, meetings, family, we, I got a million variations, but community, there it is, right?
0: Sex and drugs and rock and roll, as Ian Jury put it, as well. <laughs> there you go. It's uh, all my mind and body needs.
1: <laughs> so that being uh, emotional needs, um, like I said, I think that's sort of the primary engine driving this thing. But then um, the third thing that I'm adding to the mix that is that is kind of new, and at least for me, but it's not new in terms of theory. It's just for me. It, it's it's another. It's the third dimension of what's driving us. What what is it that that is not emotional needs and is not critical thinking or rationality or fact evidence based ideas. What's this third thing? And that is our sense of morality. Um, and that's a troublesome word for a lot of people. But what let me simplify what I mean by it. And I use the word morality or morals because I'm drawing from. Jonathan Haidt's um, moral foundations theory, right, which he wrote about in *The Righteous Mind*, and I like that theory. I think it's a sound social science theory, even even though I have critiques for how he himself uses it. Um, but Jonathan Haidt specifically—he's
0: he, a—he's a Christian, isn't he?
1: He is, and yeah. he has some pretty conservative leanings, even though he <laughs> identifies leftist ide- ideologically, and. He's got some interesting interpretations and takes on it. And yet, so I kind of separate that from his theory, as I think we should do, and look at his theory and go, I like this theory. This is a really good way of explaining how, like Lisa Feldman Barrett did with emotions, the theory of constructed emotions, he looks at moral foundations and how they are constructed. Mm. And I like his theory. So from that, I use the word morals. I could use other words, but the the concept here is very simple and I and I'm trying to sidestep an entire philosophical, you know, epistemological argument of oh well, you know, morals, what's that? What's good? What's bad? I don't care. What I'm talking about when I mention morals is what an individual himself or herself thinks is good, bad, right, wrong. All of us have a map. Or we have our moral map, and it and it's complicated. It is multi-layered, and it is extremely context-specific. All of us, I think, and it is my my sort of uh, summary way of throwing this out there to people is all of us are okay, or most of us, the vast majority of us, are okay with people being killed. In certain contexts, <laughs> and we're not well, okay not with. Well, not in the the my others. house, you know. What I mean, well, exactly right. Or um, you know, it's not okay to just you know go out and just because you're you know irked at somebody to shoot them in the head, but if that person came into your home and you know threatened the lives of your children or actually you know did something horrible to your family, you'd feel very correct in taking them out. Uh, you'd be a very unusual person if you didn't. It doesn't, I'd rather main them a little bit, you know, if, if, if you give me the choice. But <laughs> Right. And I'm not trying to mandate that it's an all or nothing. I'm trying to just point out an example of the relativism of our thinking in good and bad yeah. and right and wrong. And the fact that we all individually do have our lines in the sand that we have chosen. We are the ones who decide that. Maybe it's informed by our religious book. Maybe it's informed by our college classes. Maybe it's informed by our social network. Very, very much heavily influences our our sense of right and wrong, good and bad. Is
0: even know. if if we take the the notion of killing a human, mm-hmm. that um, the Jain uh, religion is absolutely opposed to killing anything. So you know they sweep the path in front of them. You know I don't know what they've thought about bacteria, uh-huh. fungi, and mm-hmm and um, viruses is but uh, and I don't particularly want to know Um, but you know it's like with vegetarians you know I mean do you you think that plant's mother is happy that what you've done to it you know Um, which leads us down this thing of fruitarians where if all you eat is is the capsule in which the seeds don't eat the seeds because they're alive but if you only eat the apple and keep the seeds you haven't actually killed anything you haven't taken Uh, life uh, but unfortunately you won't have enough nutrition to survive so you probably need a bit of milk or something which if you're a vegan you can't have it just gets so complicated so with the Jains, you've got this thing of you mustn't kill anything Mm -hmm. um and with the Buddhists, there's there's the story about the buddha in a past life having supposedly met a starving tigress and given his body to her to eat so that she would persist why didn't go down to mcdonald's and get her a couple of burgers i don't know but you know have to ask the buddhists about that i i'm not one of them anymore um so there are even there there are extreme points of view but as you say if your life is threatened your well-being is threatened and more especially so as you say if your children are threatened Mm -hmm. in any way then you know that the prohibition "Thou shalt not kill" becomes an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's right. It very quickly becomes in the Mosaic law.
1: That's right. That's right. And and regardless of that, I mean, I, again, that's a that's an example of moral relativity. But the point is, it doesn't matter to me what your moral position is. What matters to me is that you do have one. Hmm. There is not, again, I, do, I feel very safe in saying that there is not one human being anywhere, anywhere that doesn't have moral positions and can explain them to you. If you, if you start talking to people in even the most basic language, what's right, what's wrong, what's mm. good, what's bad, mm. right? You will get answers to those questions. It's, it's part yes. of being human to experience those feelings and those mm. attitudes. So, um, and it's, and it's inherent, it's an inherent part of a social network of a social hierarchy you know, that you be in, right? Because you have to, how do you act around and with other people? That's where we get it from. And, and of course, how do you act toward yourself? What's okay to do? What's okay, you know, what's not okay to do, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and again, very super context specific, people can get fooled by the variety of, of the experiences, the arguments that get made to justify them—none of that matters in what I'm talking about. All I'm saying is, people have a sense of right and wrong, good and bad, and that will drive and influence their behavior, hmm. right? And so, between these three things, and I believe in this model that facts are kind of at the bottom of the pyramid, if you know, or whatever the the, the levels are here. And I think there's this engine of emotional needs that drives it, and it's tempered by or modified in the moment and on the longer term by our sense of right and wrong and good and bad. And I think if you understand those three things um, in an individual, if you kind of have a good sense of where this person's coming from, what they think is right and wrong, good and bad, where their emotional needs are at for that individual – and you have some sense of their education or some sense of their of their rationality or how they go about approaching things, I think you're going to have a very good sense of what that person's about and how they're going to act. And not, and not in a sense of I'm going to predict their every move or word or any kind of nonsense like that. I'm just <laughs> saying I think we have a sense of where that person's going. And I think those three things give us the best window or clue into what that person's going to do or you know has done and explains the behavior and that's kind of it those are the three things and i right now i kind of have it as this sort of three-dimensional model in my head of it's kind of a spectrum sort of thing again super context specific just because they believe that this is right in this context doesn't mean they do in this other context People are complicated and they're, and they're affected by things differently. So I'm not trying to present this as some simpleton model of, oh, it's all so easily worked out. It's just, I think these three spheres of activity or these three things about people are the things that drive their behavior. I really don't think there's a whole lot going on outside of these things.
0: Yeah, and I, I tend to agree with you that the direct needs – you know having moved beyond the you know the the needs to maintain homeostasis in the yeah. human body so yeah. that it we stay alive that um we know that or, or it is strongly suggested that once a com- once an individual comes to a level where they have um all of their physical needs are met that they're earning enough money that their happiness will no longer be dependent upon material goods right so once you pass a level where you've got somewhere to live you you've got clothes you've you've got everything flying through then the anxieties and depression which of course affect probably about a third of the people in the world maybe more uh, because they don't have enough once you've overcome those things you're not by having a, a andrew tate um set of ferraris and porsches which seemed largely to have been leased in fact it wasn't that he'd earned that much money um but you know adding another maserati is not in fact going to make you any happier Mm -hmm. beyond the immediate moment and so that fundamental level in, in maslow's hierarchy of needs um as as you say, comes to out what our emotional needs are. What is it that satisfies us, and the components with that within that, I see that that, that we seek newness, novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a a mock German word about twenty years ago, Neugier, the 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 absolute necessity of having something new, which I think Amazon has fulfilled for us all now. Yeah, um, that you know. The wish list, I mean, what a great idea. I can have thousands of things I'll never be able to afford. (laughs) That's
1: right. That's right.
0: And the the public can, you know, people can come and look at my wish lists and buy me these things and they're not doing, frankly, and that's a bad thing. But, so that, we want the the emotional, we want the emotion of, of, it's called infatuation. That's our favorite, that the, They're falling in love with an idea, a person, a thing, um, a creature, uh, beauty, you know, that, you know, we want to have that buzz, that feeling. And the word itself contains everything we need to know infatuation, from fatuous to become silly. We want that kind of childlike apprehension of the world. And I think that. In terms of emotional needs, there's also maturity, mm-hmm. and you know the, the goal, which very few human beings will ever reach. You know, in in Buddhism and other sects, um, in Hinduism, it's moksha, the liberation, the enlightenment, the illumination, the union with God. All of these ways of describing something, which, as far as I now believe, is maturity. The point where you're going, oh, it's all all right. I'm fine with it. Yes. Not, you know, I now have the wisdom and knowledge of the gods, which is the bullshit that that we're being sold. Or, you know, I am a living Buddha. I am now Osho, Bhagwan, the supreme god, or or, or what have you. But that point where you are, in fact, satisfied with being alive, where all of that, the angst of your teens is finally and living in a society that wants to keep everybody in their teens because advertising doesn't work on grown-ups you know, <laughs> so you've got to keep them down in a place where the infatuation can be triggered and and where those emotional needs can be pandered to so i think there's an important point in maturity which is understanding your own emotional needs
2: uh, it, and that, yes it,
0: yes that doesn't mean having a psychotherapist tell you what you ought to think or no. You know, following any model, it means coming back home to yourself and saying, "What do I actually want, and which parts of it am I getting, and how could I satisfy those things?" And as you say, I do think you know we can make a variety of models, and the idea of uh, community, society, that and that you have that spectrum there. That the psychopath doesn't need community because the psychopath cannot experience community. They, they, there's me and there's the rest of you right yeah so and um i satisfying my desires is all that matters that's the the psychopath position which is at one end of the spectrum the other end of the spectrum you, you have I, I can't remember his name the harvard expert on on narcissist he calls them echoists and mm. i absolutely disagree with as you know, with almost everything that's said about narcissism, because it's the wrong word. But at the other end of his spectrum, he has healthy narcissism in the middle, narcissism at one extent, extreme, and, and echoism at the other. An echoist is somebody who doesn't want you to pay any attention to them. They don't want you to say happy birthday. They don't want to be pointed to at all. And that's, to me, at the opposite end from the psychopath, where you've got somebody um whose emotional need is to be left alone hmm. whereas with the psychopath the emotional need is i don't care about you you've, you've you know i i'm here to exploit you i met this I, I, this this guy spent 2 years getting to know me lovely guy and he, he was at university here in nottingham and he was on my nephew's friends and, and we spent a fair amount of time together and at the end of 2 years he wrote me this letter and he said that for 2 years he'd try, been trying to trick me into doing something horrid. And I don't really know what he was talking about because I'm not very observant. And it all unpacked that, that he'd grown up in a family where his father was violent to his mother, but he blamed his mother because she would just keep egging the man on, knowing he was gonna hit her. You mm-hmm. know, So they'd got this destructive codependency going on. Mm-hmm. And his mother had told him, nobody ever does anything except for themselves and so he spent two years and you know i'm sure if he'd looked in the right places he would have found what he was looking for but he he didn't trying to get me to do something that would be selfish and mean and you know and as i say he just wasn't looking hard enough because i'm probably (laughs) as selfish as anybody else really Mm -hmm. but this idea of a world where people only do that which satisfies themselves and do not care what other people feel that's the the world of the two percent that's the world of the psychopaths. the rest of us actually do care what other people feel and that sense of fulfilling our emotional needs i mean i've said often enough before that i think that there's pleasure and i think we 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 should include pleasure in our lives we you know there should be the reward of well, chocolate, you know. Let's face it, and um, you know, nice things, but that that will not be satisfying, and that 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 pursuing pleasure for ourselves will lead possibly and probably to debauchery. Um, well, often, something I've never been able to afford, frankly. Yeah, you know? no. <laughs> or 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 to collapse you know that because it's not satisfying and then you have happiness which which for me very much derives from the sense that you've contributed something the sense you've done something the sense that somebody else has benefited from what you've done so you cook a good meal and people enjoy it right you know um you yeah i keep saying it but you know one of the nicest things that's ever happened to me and i said this at toronto It goes back that far 2015, that I had a letter from a woman who said, you probably won't remember me. And she's right, I don't. The the flow of people has been so vast and immense and my memory is so poor, I have no idea. She said, we met 15 years ago and I spent the afternoon with you. And I just want you to know that that was the turning point in my life, that every Scientology had messed everything up. And from there, I am happily married. I have children and I have a career. And that transformation occurred at that moment, and that's that feels particularly good to me because I don't feel I necessarily did anything other than encourage her, really, you know, and say you'll um, be all right, it'll be fine. I had another friend who um, I, I stayed in her apartment for two nights in um, New Jersey, and seven years later, I, I hadn't heard from her. Seven years later, she said those conversations we had, I decided I was worth something. I went and got a degree and a master's degree. <laughs> It's like that's happiness to, to know that as you moved along that that something positive happened, you know the, the, that you were able to be a, a catalyst for, for somebody that allowed them to then do something positive and wonderful in their life. And that I think there are those two aspects of the emotional need. We need pleasure mm-hmm. but we need that sense of purpose, that sense of meaning uh william james said i will act as if what i did made a difference he was such a brilliant man he really was though he believed in ghosts and all of that kind of stuff you know the, um well, nobody
1: nobody perfect but
0: but i know and, and why, why why would it be perfect or not he set up the psychic research societies in in britain and in america and in the end said i don't think that there is conclusive proof so he was right. a very good scientist exactly and, taking the view that this shouldn't be researched is is not a, a good one though there doesn't seem to be any good research 150 years on
1: i know i know but it it i think what you're saying highlights for me the fact of that infinite variety point and i think that's a really important one um, because one of the things that you know that for me that this does is it helps me understand people and yet not take away from that infinite variety of experience because that moral foundation is really really an important point of this mm. um where we see that people's ideas of what is acceptable behavior and what isn't can be can be quite a spectrum experience and you don't have
0: wave your shoe at an arab whatever you do at an arrow arab arab
1: Oh yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, do yeah. not wave your
0: shoe at an I'm telling you. Okay, Don't show I'm... your bare feet to to a Thailand.
1: Okay. Oh. Yeah, there you go. A, a highly cultural, again, highly mm-hmm. contextual. Um psychopaths. I will argue that they do have a sense of right and wrong, good and bad. It just happens to be incredibly different from yours
0: and mine. Yeah, what 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 suits me is right and mm-hmm. what doesn't suit me is wrong. Exactly. And that is that point of the other that you know, and I don't think that we can actually um, have a fulfilling life without accepting the existence of the other. Um, but then you get in a Christian culture, and you wouldn't find this in Thailand, for example. Um, we have this idea of sacrificing yourself completely mm-hmm. to the other. Mm-hmm. This is very much considered virtuous, though I notice that our captains of industry don't do it you know, and the people in power don't seem to do it at all, other than, I suppose, looking at our politicians, they work such long hours that they cease to be human beings. So there is that amount of sacrifice, but it does make them rather dangerous in their decision making. And Margaret Thatcher slept only four hours a night. And I think you can tell.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, I, too, only slept four hours a night for quite a while. I know what that (laughs) feels like. Mm. And, um, And again, you know, when you're, you know, these are, there's another point to this um, that is an important point. So I'm glad we just went there, um, which is that these can change and do change over time. These are not static things. My, in fact, they're infinite. This is, and this neurologically, we talk about plasticity uh mm-hmm. of the plasticity of the brain how it can be rewritten it can rewire itself
0: yeah one uh, part and- of the brain can take on a task that was formerly done by another after a stroke for example mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. there are parts that are just gone now but That's the right. functions can all be or almost all be regained by retraining because That's of right. neuroplasticity you then of course have neurogenesis where we are we are, and, and this is was the great gift of prozac as far as i'm concerned it's the only gift of prozac but there you go that it showed that there was neurogenesis in the hippocampus; that new cells were being made. Until 1990, 1991, when this research was done, it was believed that after the age of 25, new brain cells aren't being made, which is a, a ridiculous idea. That's right. Um, That's right. And it is post probably through you know expanding the hippocampus because depressives um, have a shrunken hippocampus or have hippocampi. There are two of them. Um, and what's happening with Prozac, for reasons that are completely unknown, we, the only thing we can be reasonably sure of now has got nothing to do with serotonin. After last year's huge meta-analysis of, of serotonin, we don't know what it does anymore. All of this confidence, sort of, it boosts your serotonin, it boosts your dopamine, it boosts your oxytocin. No, these are all metaphors. We don't understand what any, any of the, melatonin, any of these chemicals do anymore. And that's a good place to start investigating and finding out what they actually do, and come away from our simplistic metaphors that sound us, make us sound really clever because we've used, you know, neurological terms to sure explain things. Well, but I, there is it, neuroplasticity is a very important concept. On I'm, you know, I'm not criticising use of that. It, yeah. it's extremely important. We change, and the. Um, What's the New Zealand study where they took a 1,000 kids born in 72, 73, was it? And they followed them through life. And it's actually shown that all of our presumptions were wrong, that people change incredibly through a lifetime. Jung's idea that, you know, personality is fixed at birth. Yeah. Um, You know, as Fromm says, temperament, perhaps, but character not. So you have a temperament, but you will develop a character and that's up to you that's not up to um nature or nurture it always bothered me as a kid why have we just got these two things can't i make any decisions you know can't i change things by being rational about stuff and and apparently not but well th- that's you know we you... can grow up we can mature the other thing they found in that they found so far in that study because of course it's still going 50 years later is that the psychiatric designations given to these people also changed Mm -hmm. so that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're a schizophrenic, not necessarily. You might just be a schizophrenic for this period of time. And now we're going to say you've got bipolar instead, or, you know, you've got something else. So And that's really exciting. That's really positive news because it means we can take responsibility. We can help people to change and we can ourselves change and we will, whether we like it or not.
1: Exactly. I
0: personally intend to become entirely cynical. That's my goal.
1: Well, it's uh, the one constant is change, right? (laughs) Uh, It's the one thing that never changes about putting on events. I can tell you that is that everything changes. And and it is very hopeful because it means that that there is uh, that that nobody need be stuck in any situation or or mm. way of thinking or way of approaching life or whatever. Uh, nor do they need to be stuck in you know their mental health status or diagnosis. These things can be changed. This is not to say that it is easy. This is not to say that this is universally simple or anything like that. You know, it's it can often be the work of years. and And this is where psychoeducation comes in, of course, when we talk about cult recovery, is what are you talking about? You're talking about changing somebody. You're talking about changing their moral foundations. You're talking about changing the way they go about satisfying their emotional needs. I happen to believe that emotional needs are pretty... A solid with people. I'm not saying that they don't change that of course they can. but the need to fulfill those needs, right? The, the, the driver, the engine that's driving that, I don't think that changes, but I think the content of what you know is going to satisfy a person certainly changes. Me, for example, uh, years and years of working and working and working and fucking working to overcome this need to save the world. You know it was a need man it was not an option it was this has to get done and this was Uh a community and purpose and meaning and identity need for me it Mm -hmm. filled many buckets and and it drove me to do a lot of stuff good and bad right and wrong and of course those things would be tempered by my moral compass or you know those that moral Mm -hmm. foundation And when I was in Scientology, those moral foundations were very, very focused around the good of Scientology. And if it was good for Scientology, it was good, period. I don't need to argue about it. I don't even need to really think about it.
0: I I mean, I suspect that I'm still suffering from this disorder (laughs) that um, I, you know, I I now recognize I have the empathy disorder, Mm. the knee jerk need to help people. Mm -hmm. Not always, but in too many situations yes i have taken a homeless person into my home and had him live here for 11 months you know and um mm. couldn't get rid of him um but uh ugh. and the sense in that is always i'm not kind enough mm. i'm you know i'm not giving enough there's always that that sense but i intended a year ago last june when I reached the glorious age of 66, which is the state retirement age in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, I intended to stop doing this. I've been doing this since I was 28 years old. It's this is the 40th year and it's been arduous. It's been really difficult. And I find myself caught between two thoughts. One of them is. There must be a better way of doing this. Looking at our society and the authoritarian mess that we are in. You know, we yeah. pretend democracy, but we actually uh, elect malignant human beings because they look pretty or they, they sound confident and they then mess things up royally. They are the, often the least competent people among us who get to have power and that bothers me so at the other end of that is this must be like you know when I first picked up the Rubik's Cube you know back in 1979 or whenever it was and I went I'm not going to look at a book I'm not going to have anybody tell me it took me eight months to get right there I was still there's still two moves on it that confused me that I'm not totally sure about but it's like a Rubik's Cube and it appeals to me in that way that There are problems in society, which I now boil down to authoritarianism, the idea that some people have, that they are divine and should be obeyed because of their genius, which is never true. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the majority of people and Jane McGregor in her sociopath empath, um, apath seat model, um, she puts forward this idea that that there are. The majority of people, about 60% of people, are followers. They're Mm -hmm. people who will, I'm not bright enough to make my mind up. And, oh, he's got a really nice suit, so he must know what to do. That I see that ridiculously simple dynamic in in human society. And then I think about this documentary that I saw. And my wife actually said the other day, you really must put this on record, this thought. And um, she was probably just being nice to me. I saw this documentary, I was I don't know, about 20 years old. I was in Scientology already by this time. It was just a little afternoon TV documentary about a Japanese artist, a Sumi painter. A guy who paints little birds and twigs and flowers and things. And he was about 80 years old and he lived in this tiny little hut. It had got one little room that was just big enough for his cot to sleep in. And then he'd got a, a little place where he could sit, which just had a roof over it, where he could paint. That was it. And his robe, you know, kind of very monastic, really. And he said, well, I I wake up when I feel like it. And then I, 80 years old, I wander through the bamboo. I live in the bamboo forest and I listen to the bamboo. And then the inspiration takes me and I walk back to the hut and I grind some ink and I write out a Buddhist sutra from memory. And then the moment comes when I can paint a bird on a bough. And then the feeling will go. And then I go to sleep. And then the next day, now, since I saw that at you know, nearly 50 years ago, I've gone, that's how I want to live. I want to empty my mind of all of this dreck and nonsense and kludge. And I want to to be able to be inspired in the moment and do the next thing. And I am a painter and a writer and a musician and a singer and all of this kind of stuff. I want to do that. But this saving the world stuff. You know, and I know I can't do it, and I know it can't be done, but I don't see enough people trying to do it. So, it—it's how do we get rid of the desperate obsession to do it? Right. And you know, I—I I don't know. You see, any day this channel could go blank because I could kind of go, "Oh, I found the bamboo forest. Thank you very much." You know. Mm-hmm. So I—I I think you know that it's an aside, but I think it's a relevant one that that I still feel that i am driven i mean there's a distinction that's made between um confucians and Taoists, and the idea is that the Taoist um alan watts at the end of his life renounced zen buddhism having infected the western world with it thank you so much through so the evil daiset suzuki we won't get into that but he really was an evil human being um and Watts says oh it was actually the Taoist idea that that i liked so he, in um the last of his book Dao, that books Dao the watercourse way he says, um, having realized this at the end of his life that if a Zen monk is told to meditate by his master then he meditates if a Taoist is told to meditate by his master then he meditates if he feels like it so that's so the idea is with Confucians they say of Confucius if the if If the mat was not straight, the master would not sit. Whereas Taoists, like, who cares which way the mat's pointing? I have always wanted to be a Taoist. Right. And I've indeed translated character by character over years. The Tao Te Ching and read 50, 60 versions of the Tao Te Ching, 50 commentaries. Got my head really into that thinking. And I would love to be that, but I am a Confucian. That's my temperament. The stuff is not in the right place. I want to systematize and I want to, that's my, one of my emotional needs. That's right. That there be order things. And to be in a world where it is so bleeding obvious that authoritarianism is what's wrong. Bullies, bosses, you know, it's not about hierarchy, that's not wrong. It's not about status. It's not about people having rank. It's about people having authority based upon their own say, so based upon somebody telling you, you know, I'm the boss and you've got to do this Mm -hmm. and the rest of us become slaves to that idea and getting people to be willing to make decisions. There's, you know, here's the fulfillment of, here's a morality, here are your emotional needs, and here's how to think about it, which is, can I grow up? Can I become responsible? Can I be helpful to the world? Can I make the world a better place by contributing something to it? Can I be a, a golden thread in the tapestry of humanity rather than can I be a selfish monster who's got a new pair of Levi's and wears Adidas trainers and you know has a Porsche and that, that our society is pointed at the wrong thing? That all seems rather obvious, but there don't seem to be that many people saying it and our society our educational system is still positively victorian in its attitude towards children and what we should be doing we don't hit them anymore which is rather good but they are still belittled and humiliated they're still um, watched you know for me the terrible thing about school was i you know if you if you ask me what's seven times seven i'll tell you it's 49 and then i'll I'll check in my head because I hate to be wrong because all school did was make me feel I was wrong about everything. Right. So my normal spontaneity was just collapsed into this anxiety, you know, which I, I guess after 400 videos, I must've overcome to some extent. You know, but...
1: That's why that's, that's, half the reason we're doing all this. Right. I, uh, I think that, I think it's interesting because when I, when I hear you talk about these things and, and you're, you know, and that, that, you know that sort of desire that need to you know to 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 help to save the world to make the world a, a better place i think so much of that is informed by also by your moral foundations right and that see, because it's this balancing act for me of in trying to explain this to people because i think the morality component is a much stronger component than is generally realized you know i think i think people think about it like a you know you're carrying around some rule book or something but it's so integrated with how we see i think i think if if anything our moral foundations have so much to do with how we perceive the world how we how we view it and how we judge it and what we want to change about it and I, think, and I think that this is, uh, that follower thing is really important because it's, it's a moral as well as an emotional problem. Um, mm-hmm. People want to be followers. Well, half the reason for that is because they feel that's their role. That's the natural order of things. That's what's right and wrong, good and bad, is that I follow, you lead. Their father did that. Their pastor did that. Their teacher did that. You know, various people in their lives have fulfilled this role that, to them, is completely organic and natural, and how things should be. And they look at you and think you're some upstart. You're so who? Who put you in charge? Who told you your morals were the ones I need to live by? You know, if they could articulate an argument against you, they'd be like, "No, I'm. This is how it's supposed to be." He says, "I do." And they Mm -hmm. feel just as strongly from a moral place, and this is so. This is what I. This is the stuff I just. I just find this infinitely fascinating. Is is that they will commit to that position, that point of view, and consider that is the natural order of things, and it's you do-gooders out there who are messing up the mix. And and this is a moral. This is of course the perfect place for the fertile soil of authoritarianism to grow because half the assumption is you need a leader and you know and you and i are kind of like well sometimes <laughs> you
0: know? yeah in, in certain situations and and i mean I, i've been absolutely fascinated by um a netflix series called chef's table mm. and um they have basically on all over the world and done these beautiful vignettes these lovely short stories about a particular chef and you'll find mm. you know just amazing, heart-wrenching stories, wonderful romances, every one of them beautifully shot. And these are people who are regarded as the some of the world's greatest chefs. And you see that they're also, therefore, among the world's greatest artists. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, for example, the one about Albert Adria, whose brother, Ferran Adria, is usually called the greatest chef in the world. You know that one person has has arrived at this point. They had a restaurant in Barcelona for more than 20 years called El Bulli, B-U-L-L-I, Bulli. And out comes Albert, his little brother, and he says, I'm sick and tired of it, saying Ferran, Adria and his brother. And you then find that the 1,800 recipes that El Bulli is known for were all the little brother. Albert, Ah. he doesn't like that he doesn't like the limelight so you Mm -hmm. get a story turned around it's not to say that fran is not a great chef you know he could come around and cook me breakfast anytime i wouldn't mind um but one of the things that really comes through having watched all six seasons Mm -hmm. of this wonderful program now i'm now into the french chef's table so i have to read the subtitles um and polish up my schoolboy french but one of the wonderful things is seeing that some of these chefs do hold the traditional french chef authoritarian model everybody says yes chef you know Mm -hmm. you do this you do that but a few of them uh will goldfarb was really interesting he studied El we he did wild and wacky things in new york and then he went what am i doing this for and moved to bali and he's like you know as a chef i just took chocolate out of a packet now I can go and pick it and I can use fresh chocolate, fresh cinnamon, you know? Mm. So he's basically said, yeah, sod it. I'm gonna have a fantastic life and being a chef's a rotten thing. That's really interesting. But the thing that's really got me is seeing those chefs who created democracy within their kitchens. Mm. They say, hey, everybody here's creative. Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. And the difference in emotional attitude in those kitchens, in those places where you see people who've given up this idea of dictatorship as leadership and have accepted that that we can be a collaboration, which of course is how the human brain works. Mm -hmm. There isn't a little guiding self in the chiasmatic nucleus, um, as some believed until 20 years ago. There are 200 brain regions which are interacting in real time and great human societies you know this idea we're at the end of history because patrician capitalism is (laughs) where evolution was headed absolutely not um graber and wengro the dawn of everything most important book i've read in the last 10 years because it just blows apart those ideas of progress and says there have been so many different human societies that were immensely successful and we should be learning from them and we're not because Mm. they've been pushed into the shadows. Mentioned the Enlightenment earlier. The Enlightenment appears to have come out of the Algonquin peoples of of the Americas, that Rousseau actually was tutored with ideas from a man called Condironk. And he is a historical figure, and you can trace this incredible influence that when the filthy, dirty, loathsome Europeans arrived on the east coast of the Americas, the Algonquin looked at them and went, oh, my, you, oh no. And the, they had this one major idea that was difficult to them. Within Algonquin society, the people of your tribe are beloved, and you do everything good for them. Whereas Europeans were always fighting with each other, always squabbling with each other, and that was the foundational idea of the perfect society that Rousseau came—you know, mm-hmm. the noble savage. What you haven't got written into that is, of course, if you're a member of another tribe, we will quite happily torture you to death. So. Uh, yeah,
1: I I, I, uh, I do have a little bit of a problem with the with with the. <laughs> <laughs> the idea they were perfect people over here and, no, and horrible it's an, an absolute, over there. it's an
0: absolute nonsense. And yeah. Rousseau had no experience of it. And this is a man who abandoned his own children to an orphanage before we, we put him on any platform. Right. Um, but he he kickstarts the Enlightenment, but he kickstarts it from another culture. And those other cultures are there. And we can function in you know, my talk this week with with my dear friend Ira Chaylaff. Mm -hmm. Um, we go back to 1977, that's Mm. how long we've known each other, Mm. who's done this incredible work um, with courageous followership. And he's looking at his next book and he was sort of saying, well, you know, power tends to corrupt and we have to have something that deals with that corruption. And I'm sort of going, I don't think it has to. I think we could grow up. I think human beings are, are capable of being decent. I just think there's not been a lot of it so far, and our systems need to be fine-tuned. And Ira's done more about that than anybody else alive, I think, with intelligent disobedience and courageous followership. He's given ideas to the world, which are now being used by the US military, for example. Um, These ideas have been taken on. Uh, The European Council have accepted his ideas. Sandhurst, the military academy here, gave him an award. He's a a fellow at Cambridge University, a travelling fellow because of his achievement, quite rightly. And these ideas, as they seep into the world, pull away the authoritarianism, which is the kind of childhood of humanity. That is, you know, the unthought out. Because when we go to the top of our, if it's a pyramid, and talk about critical thinking, Critical thinking can take us to the point where, yeah, we could make a much, much better world, but we have to be careful about not putting predators in charge, you know, which is the mistake up until today that we have made.
1: And continue you know that- to make, that's right because yeah. of and and i believe again that that goes back to um you know i'm just a broken record now but it's but it really is going back to the perception or interpretation of the fulfillment of those needs yeah you know when it's a choice between because what are we doing when we're talking about a a a ideological race or a, a political race or campaign mm-hmm. it's a popularity contest and what determines mm-hmm. popularity it's its ego its selfishness its 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 individual need and and its communication of those needs to a populace and that's where we get Edward, and that's where revenez enters the and it comes on stage yeah. you know
0: and the spin the spin up <laughs> i mean when when new labor came into power here in 1997 under tony b liar sorry tony blair yeah. um, the socialist who made 25 million dollars in his first year mm. after being prime minister from yale and didn't give it away and the christian who didn't give it away but when they came to power their campaign in in early 97 my jaw dropped as somebody who'd been studying um propaganda coercion Mm -hmm. uh, manipulation for you know what 15 years by then i just went you are kidding me surely it's obvious to people what they're doing what came out from that was that philip gould had been sent over to the Clinton campaign to find out how to do it and that Clinton's manipulations. And you get this sort of, well, the other side are going to do this. I mean, James Callaghan, who was British prime minister in before Margaret Thatcher came to power, said the Labour Party will never use a public relations agency. That didn't prove to be true.
1: Yeah, I'll and bet it didn't.
0: So then Philip Gould, Derek Draper, Alistair Campbell, one after another of the spin doctors who were keeping the new labor machine going, wrote books about it, boasting about how they'd manipulated us, how they'd cheated us, as if we were going to turn them into heroes for doing this. I think that the public perception of politics is just, yeah, you and know, with Cambridge Analytica and the mm-hmm. Trump campaign and so on, that they're all corrupt. That the Mm -hmm. political parties are corrupt, that their leaders are corrupt, and nobody dares stand up and tell the truth anymore. Nobody dares to say, to become president of the United States, you need $1,000 million. But we're a democracy. Anybody can become president. Yeah, as long as they've been through the vetting process of the party. So, we've created a system that that does not work and is not working what we do next is another matter and we'll probably resolve that in our next conversation yeah exactly i was going to say
1: <laughs> yeah it's a it's a, it just goes layer upon layer upon layer on this stuff because You know, I'm talking about individual behavior, of course, you know, in putting this little model together and Mm. and there are lots of unanswered questions for me still in terms of moving this out to a sociological model or looking at this from a group perspective, Mm. because I can see very clearly for myself how these things are an engine of of driving behavior for an individual. Um, And I and I and part of that is that an individual is plugged into a system, any individual, unless they're in solitary confinement or, you know, uh, off on an island by themselves, they're plugged into some kind of network that is more than them.
2: Hmm.
1: And and we can't just give that lip service you know the 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 influence that 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 our social connections have on us and by social i don't just mean our friends i yeah. mean you know your job right your the, the civilization you live in the culture you're in mm. the, the tv you're shows part of. you watch yeah. yeah the tv shows you watch exactly right what you find entertaining what you find not entertaining mm. what you will avoid says as much about you as what you like mm. and these things are highly influential and so it's not like this idea that I'm having somehow contradicts or nullifies a biopsychosocial model which has been around since the 50s I believe Mm -hmm. and that's also an important way of understanding our psychology and our Mm -hmm. and and how we operate so I'm so I'm offering this kind of thinking what I'm putting together here in in an effort to try to answer the question you know why the hell that guy do that? <laughs> you know? It's like, well, here's some uh, here's some answers. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's more to it, maybe there's other ways we can look at it. This like emotion, you know, you can look at it psychologically, you can look at it sociologically, you can look at it neurologically, and you will have different interpretations of the exact same phenomena at it, you know, from these different perspectives. And so I think <laughs> I think similarly you know there's different ways of looking at behavior but i think i'm i think i i like what i've put together and i and i wanted to share that today and and yeah it's good
0: get your feedback but, and it. let let's say that that with emotions that that there's a differentiation which which Lisa uh, Feldman Barrett among others makes yeah which is there are things that you feel that are physical so yes. if you feel fear then that's a cortisol response. And you do have to have cortisol to wake up in the morning. It's mm-hmm. not a chemical you want to get rid of, but you'll get an excess of it. You have adrenaline responses. These are feelings which we think of as emotions, yep. but they're also emotions which are contrived and constructed. And she talks about the, the sense you have when you finished a big bag of chips. And uh, for, ing- for any British speakers, that's crisps. You finished a big bag of chips and you've got the satisfaction of having eaten a big bag of chips, the self-disgust at having eaten a big bag of chips and the appetite for another big bag of chips. And shouldn't there be a word for that? that, And she offers one, which I don't actually remember. (laughs) Um, But that sense, firstly, that emotions are just this one thing, but emotions occur in the mind and the body. That's right. And... The body occurs in the mind as well exactly. you know something that and right. we then get into I, I mean um in in recovery from uh an authoritarian cult group it's typical to look at the induction of phobia and the induction of guilt i long ago added the induction of aversion that a very strong way of controlling people so the way that the nazis controlled the german population was by telling them that the jews are all infested with lice which carried disease Mm -hmm. this seems Mm -hmm. to have been largely forgotten in in modern times but there was this actual aversion physical disgust that was being sold these people are all smelly they're all this that or the other um i think phobia guilt and aversion as emotional you know looking at that and what is what is the spectrum that a phobia an irrational fear as opposed to a rational fear um, has at the other end of it not feeling phobic so that when you meet somebody who comes from a different culture you don't feel you know this inherent racism which we're told is a neurological response which i totally and absolutely doubt you know i, I think it's a silly experiments being performed mm. i don't think we're inherently racist i think we're inherently xenophobic that anything strange to us is strange to us and that which has become familiar is familiar but that doesn't mean that we it means we suspect that which is not familiar not we hate it that's right for me again in my early i think i was about 22 and I, I, and in scientology so you can still think even if you're a cultman i read a book by shisako endo called the silence which martin scorsese much much later made into a film which is quite a good film but I felt the film didn't have the power that book had, because the book did some... I'd been studying Zen Buddhism, you know, I'd studied Zen Buddhism for a year, uh, age 18, 19, and a couple of years later, here I am you know, fascinated by Japanese culture, you know, the floating world, ukiyo the the arts, you know, I've been doing copies of Japanese prints since I was about 15, I was saturated in this culture, and suddenly... I'm reading this book and it's about the persecution of Christians who would be caught and crucified in Japan after Christianity was made illegal because that's the way they'd like to go, isn't it? Like their their founder. Um, and you know, this barbarous behavior, which we see from the outside as Westerns in a particular way, being described by a contemporary Japanese Christian who is writing a, a brilliant novel ab- about this. What really got me was that although he had a Christian perspective, and I come from a Christian culture too, I didn't recognize the way he looked at the world because Mm he was Japanese. Mm -hmm. And there were aspects of his morality, of of what would be normal to him, Mm -hmm. that seemed strange to me. Mm -hmm. And I really caught hold of that with the thought, well, ah, so whenever I'm dealing with somebody whose worldview is different from mine, I'm going to have to take into account that it's not necessarily natural to behave in the way that, it's like my mum, she mm-hmm. used to, she came from Nottingham, which is where I live now, but I grew up in Lichfield in Staffordshire, 40, 50 miles away, completely different dialect, of course, this being England. And so she explained to me from childhood onward that there are all of these dialects, you know, when people come from Birmingham, they talk like it is in the Peaky Blinders, when straight up and no messing. Are you kidding um, now? Which was that was about fifteen miles off where I lived from, and so we had a lot of immigrants from Birmingham who, you know, in the Black Country who had this, this sort of. And so my mum said that only people in Nottingham spoke without an accent, right. And then she moved back here, age seventy something, and. I remember the day when she said to me, They've got, you know, it's not true. But she had lived within this notion, which we all tend to live in. My culture, my child culture of childhood is the proper way of doing things. And if somebody else, it's like, you know, because I was taught at school that to use the word get or got is is poor English. So when I I read mm-hmm. you know something like say ramachandran when the great ramachandran when he wrote a book without Sandra Blakesley to help him, every page is got 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 got. It's so ugly. It's so guttural. My wife, who is a teacher and you know um, a linguist and all of this, thinks it's funny that I have this obsession. It's cultural. It's it's determined. I, I'm not complaining about the American usage of gotten, by the way, which I think is beautiful and does not exist in british english interesting i have gotten wise to that idea yes i yeah.
1: have yes exactly i've gotten used to your ways john
0: yeah you will do <laughs> gradually. and the person who who must be named in this discussion the other person is irving goffman um among the sociologists and you know uh, i um one of my dear friends, Bob Penny, who was the guy that set up the computers for FACnet to publish mm-hmm. Marjorie Wakefield's books, he was such a pioneer, this guy. Um, nobody had done the complex programming that he did to create FactNet, the Fight Against Coercive Tactics Network, which I had the privilege of, you know, I was the president there for a year of a, of a non-profit. I didn't really do anything. Lawrence Wallersheim was the public face. And Bob was the engine room. Bob was doing all this stuff. Bob spent nine years studying sociology at university and then decided to become a car mechanic and joined Scientology. Wow. And he said that of his nine years studying sociology, the one thing that was really valuable was the work of Irving Goffman. Hmm. And Goffman had things like the mirror self, you know, the idea that we construct a self based on the reflection of people around us, mm. which to some extent is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of our cultural traditions and the more as they're things that bind us into that and give us that sense of community and obedience to a set of unwritten rules um and groupthink. Um, right.
1: See, and, and that's and that's where and that's one of the reasons I'm 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 talking about my ideas today and and, and, and have been talking to people about them mm-hmm. is because I suspect that I am bumping up against work that's already been done or has been done similarly. And what you just described sounds like some of that, you know, because I alluded earlier to this business of where do I end and you begin and this kind of thing and the influences we have on one another. And, and surely that I, I know I'm not, you know, an original thinker in that I know other people have have plowed that territory.
0: But the thing is to, to alert people who have not been thinking about it yeah. to think about it. Yeah. And because this is very important, understanding what drives us, yeah. um, you know, what is your objective in life? Um, there, there's a, one of, one of the, the, the great moments in rock music that is almost unknown of, there was an America in Los Angeles. There was a band called touch. And um, they produced one album and disappeared. Don Galucci, who founded it, was with the Kingsmen at the age of 15 and had a hit with Louie Louie, or Louie yeah. Louie, as it was called when the Kinks released it here. Couldn't go on tour because he was too young. He goes down, he has this makes this incredible band. They can't tour the material because it's too complicated to record. Jimi Hendrix wanders into the sessions, and when they say, we haven't got enough money to finish, he says, I will bankroll you. Uh, Mick Jagger walks through the sessions and gets their engineer who makes Beggar's Banquet, the first properly recorded Rolling Stones album. Led Zeppelin go to the studio and record Led Zeppelin II there to get the sound. So they were, uh, John Anderson of Yes said, Yes, change, change direction for the Yes album because they heard this album. Now this album is the, for me, statement about the American society at this time. And there's a, a song on it called "The Spiritual Death of Howard Greer." I don't think they knew that there really was a guy called Howard Greer who was a fashion designer at the time. I think they just thought that was a funny name, and it describes the silver paper world—the house and the car and the pretty wife and all of the things that we are meant to be, which is what hippie was meant to be against. You know, the idea of the establishment and and asking those questions and finding it and saying, "Well." What are we here for? What should we be doing? Should we be follow, you know, satisfying ourselves in some way or other? Should we be contributing something? And I think that until, you know, and for me, that was a struggle, understanding those things, having some mm. sense of that things. I went all through Scientology pretty much depressed, I think, in real terms, mm. um, because life was so hard and, you know, dealing with people. And it's only really for me in my 60s, that I've come to a point where I look at the world and go, I'm happy, I'm content, I'm satisfied. It won't necessarily last, you know, and something awful could happen, you know, in the next three minutes that that will devastate me to such an extent. You know, I do understand that, but coming to a point where I'm content with what I've done, I, I don't regret, you know, I do sometimes think, you know, spending 40 years helping ungrateful cult members isn't necessarily the best objective while being harassed into the ground by the cult but it it gives me a sense you know that i can look down on the mass of humanity and say no that i did something that fascinated me which is perhaps you know the important part of it that i was able to do something that really filled my mind in the attempt to understand and that's where we still are that's right and to not be tyrants of understanding to not become gurus teaching people how to rub yogurt on our ankles or you know whatever the content they, they do that in india they y- rub yogurt on the guru's ankles i'm so glad that i didn't get into an indian cult oh my that, god i really couldn't have dealt with that and i do i love yogurt don't get me wrong it's yeah. just rubbing it on people's ankles it just seems strange to me i must say but yeah maybe that's just a cultural thing maybe if i did it you know, I would achieve enlightenment.
1: Um, uh, or you'd tell yourself you did.
0: And kill off any uh, Candida albicans fungus on my, my fingers while oh doing it. Who knows? Oh but to have that, to to come to that sense, as you say, of having my emotional needs are met in my current life. Mm-hmm. I, they really are. I, I have a good life. Um, have a nice garden as well, which is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's what Voltaire advised us, to, to look after our gardens. You know, that, that was his lifetimes. I finally got to it. And I feel that, you know, I am happy with my moral sense. Mm-hmm. That, you know, which is, I, I think, is is a difficulty to be saying, hey, am I, I, you know, um, J.K. Rowling, when she was asked about, you know, placing the first novel, um, somebody said, "Well, so yeah, you know, what did that make you feel?" And she said, "Oh, I realised there wasn't a waste of space.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It was sort of, oh, what a bizarre. I've never thought of myself in those terms, but
1: well, she had a history of abuse that lent itself to thinking that way as well.
0: Abso- absolutely, absolutely, and, yeah. and 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 I do understand it. I, you know that yeah. um, there there are people." who are responding to something traumatic or awful that happened in their lives. That's right. For me, it was was just the search for meaning Mm -hmm. and eventually going, doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter what the purpose of the universe is. It doesn't really matter what the meaning of life is. I've seen the Monty Python film, which explained it completely. Uh, though I don't like the Mister Creosote sketch, so we won't get into that. Okay. Just one wafer thin mint. Um, <laughs> um, you know, paper the, thin. It's paper thin, sir. <laughs> but it, you know, it, arriving at some way of improving the world, and and so by having a model, by having some way that people can can look at this, think about their lives then it really doesn't matter if the model's perfect. It matters that there's something that has stimulated thought in people, Bingo. which can lead to benefit. That's so, right. you know, it's good stuff. And we're not going to say anything at all about the splinter groups from Scientology. No, That's we a ran out of time. Tantalizing morsel <laughs> that we will hang in front of you for months to come. That's right. I, with with uh, Karen de la Carrière, the, the wonderful Karen de la Carrière. Um, and we've, we've taken a furlough from our recording at the moment. But she would get to the end of each show and say and the next time we'll do this and we never did that's <laughs> we'll funny do OTA, we'll do ot8 we'll do bunny woods what have you so I, I think having those things that people have you know probably in the first show we did together we promised something and people are still waiting yeah right 30 right. shows later for us to do it
1: that's right well john mm-hmm. i thank you for joining me for this and letting me explain my, my ideas to you um, yeah, and indeed. and I I very much appreciate your reactions to them. I, I there's a long way to go with this, and we'll see what I do with it. But I but I feel in my mind, I feel like I've got something that makes a lot of sense, and also helps me help other people because this is something that I've been using in. My consultation with people, which is not therapy. I'm not trying to even go no. in any sort of faux therapy direction. No, I did I mean, it.
0: I did. I never did any yeah, of that either. Not, it's, it's information. It's getting people to think. The therapy. Right. I, I'm not at all sure about psychotherapy. Full stop. You know, <laughs> given the, the <laughs> mad people who've devised it, like Freud and Jung. Yeah. You know, fair enough. Fair enough on you.
1: that. Yeah, yeah. No. All I try to do is help people understand, through understanding, come to a place where they can think and come up with their own answers for why mm-hmm. they did what they did and why things happened the way they did. And I think that mm-hmm. that's the only place we can get those answers from is from ourselves. And so, because yep. um, we're the ones who did it and it happened to us. So how is anybody else going to possibly understand to the depth and degree we can, but mm-hmm. how can we understand if we don't have the information that we need to understand? And that's that's what I think that my role is in this, you know.
0: Yeah, it's in making somebody else the authority in their own life, which doesn't mean getting them to the point where they think they know everything. Far from it. That's right. But but getting to the point where they they know where they're headed. They know they've got some idea of why they want to go there, and they they've got some idea of who they want to travel with.
1: That's right. Exactly right. So on that Brandy. happy note, I guess we'll wrap up for this
0: week. Yeah, it's been it's been a a pleasure and a delight, as always,
1: as always. Exactly. All right, folks out there, if you are not subscribed to John's channel and to mine, subscribe. Uh, And (laughs) if you are not sharing this work, get to sharing. (laughs) And if you are not, uh, if you have not read John's books, by the way, read them. If you've not read my book, Scientology, it is Zenu, read it. I'm sure (laughs) you'll find it fascinating. And, uh, and of course, if you want to consult with me, you can contact me via my email and through my channel, and I'd be more than happy to help you out. So see you guys next week.